0: This is The Last Coffee House. We are looking at the Jordan Peterson reading list. One of the most persistently difficult questions to answer is why some countries have robust economies and affluence. And other countries still struggle to gain footing in the international scheme of things. The book we're looking at today is The Mystery of Capital, Why Capitalism Triumphs in the West and Fails Everywhere Else. So the author, Hernando de Soto, is a Peruvian economist and he's looking into the distinctions between Western countries and Third World and former communist countries. He's trying to figure out what is the difference, what's the cause, or at least what are the correlations between factors that lead to an inability to have that Western-style economy. This book was published in 2000. So what does it talk about? So it observes that capitalism isn't working everywhere. It actually mentions Blockbuster, which is pretty hilarious, as like a representative of the success of capitalism. (laughs) But like I said, he's primarily looking at third world and former communist countries and seeing what's going on. And it comes to the conclusion that the major stumbling block is the inability to produce capital. And capital is specifically created by creating representatives of assets that can be transferred amongst people. So it's something that is often just confused with money. It's just having money, but that's not the case. It's something very different from that. So a person can have a house, like in a lot of poor Peruvian areas, people will build their houses, but they can't turn that... They don't get titles to the house, and they don't have a robust system around that that supports their ownership of the house. And only the West, so far, has been able to effectively transform the invisible assets behind these things. Things, you know, it's not just the house, it's the value of the house and what you can do with that value to visible assets that people get to use and trade and conglomerate and use for other purposes. And that's what really gives them value. And the big distinction is property law. So it's the ability to own property and it's the system behind that ownership that is property law and the ideas that support property law. Now I remember property. <laughs> when I was going to school. And one of the most terrifying things as a law student was the rule against perpetuities. Our property professor actually taught it to us and tried to get us to learn it. But a lot of the other property professors, all of them, or most of them at least, said that they would not teach the rule against perpetuities. And if it came up on a test, just ignore it and move on to the next one and get it wrong. Because it's so ridiculous and complex and counterintuitive. Anyway, but that just shows. In the United States, we have a very robust property lawsuit system that we take for granted, but other countries like the third world, they don't have those. I also, for one client at one point, I had to find this property trail for property in India, and it was extremely difficult because they didn't have the same, I couldn't just look up an address and and figure out when it was sold and all that sort of stuff. It's more advanced than a lot of places, I'm sure, but it was amazing to see how different it was and how much I take for granted living here and that I can just go, I can go online and look up the sale history of any given house based on the street address <laughs> it's it's really easy so anyway he explains that the poor actually have a ton of capital in these places or a ton of property they don't have a ton of capital they don't have capital but they have a ton of property so they'll build up all their property the houses and all that sort of thing they'll build these things up in their local areas but they don't get titled to those things they don't have laws that they can use to gain value out of that they just get to live there that's all they get to use it for so there are reasons there's some reason that, that they don't have that robust property law system that they can use to get value out of this capital or turn it into capital the obstacles of legality he talks about how in peru there's a tremendous amount of red tape so something that would take you know a few days or a couple of weeks or something like that in the united states there are so many steps and it can take years to get done in peru because of the amount of bureaucracy and the lack of standardization and a bunch of other factors but this has led to a development in a lot of these places of extra legal sectors so things that are happening outside the law and this is in most of these countries you have this where you have a lot of individual entrepreneurs or individual people who are just doing things without reference to a legal standard and they just have these normalized concepts of how they're going to interact with each other and that's how they have to do it because they don't have a legal system they can use He asks how much the dead capital is worth and says that the poor, at least in some countries, or I'm guessing in in pretty much all countries, the poor collectively have more value when it comes to just looking at how much there is the poor collectively have more value than the rich do in these countries then he talks about the entre- the entrepreneurial ingenuity of a lot of these people in these poor areas and he brings up uh, he references just kind of vaguely people selling things on street corners and setting up little shanties and and sewing sweaters and calls them or paints them at least as some kind of heroic entrepreneurs in these areas and one of the this will be one of the areas where i'm going to interject a bid Because there's kind of this, when it comes to economists, obviously, if you just talk about how great capitalism and rich people are, then you're not really talking about much. (laughs) You're seen as just kind of a horrible, horrid capitalist, colonialist pig. So you have to build up all the poor people and talk about the poor people and how great the poor people are. So I don't know how much content this actually has when it's in this context when talking about the heroic entrepreneurs who are are sewing jewelry together and selling it on street corners. Is that really where the value lies? (laughs) Is that really what it is? I mean, if all of these countries are able to create these robust property systems and all the people who are formerly selling necklaces own a McDonald's or whatever, are they less heroic now because they're doing it in that context? I just... uh, Something odd about that whole... It's the posture and the shading of I have to bolster uh, the poor people all the poor people and it's so important to do that this is in 2000 though so this is 20 years ago (laughs) So maybe at the time, it was probably a little more avant-garde, I guess. Then he goes into the mystery of capital in general. So what is capital? And like I said, it's not, it's equated with money, but it's not just money. Smith and Marx come up and their distinct ideas when it comes to the economy and what's best. So for accumulated assets to become capital, they have to be fixed. So you have to have some fixed idea about what the value is going to be. And it has to last. It has to last over a long period of time by some standard as opposed to who knows how long it's going to last or not. Because initially the investment is the labor value that goes into it and you're supposed to be able to sell your labor value. And in a capitalist economy, obviously any of us us can sell our labor value somewhere, but then we have the opportunity to take that and turn it into something that's capital that can be used in other ways. So the third world, they will inflate with money. They can print money and just create more money, but this doesn't create capital. And that's why that doesn't work. is a lot of potential energy in assets that can be used that doesn't exist just in money or in the thing that you created that isn't capital or you can't use as capital. And there are imperceptibly produced mechanisms that help the property that we are totally oblivious to in the West, because these are things that developed over a long period of time, but that people in third world and former communist countries that they desperately need and have to create again on their own and try to implement from the top down which is very difficult to do. So here are some of the factors in the hidden conversion process of the West. It's ownership in general, just being able to own something. The protection of ownership, the reliably fixed answers when it comes to figuring out who owns what. Previously, he discussed how people would determine who owns what by asking the neighbors. So you'd go ask the neighbors, okay, who owns that, who owns that? And if the neighbors agreed, then wonderful, but that's, that's the only record of who owns what. And then he's got, I think there are five, yeah, five effects that are the specific effects that need to happen. So property effect number one, fixing the economic potential of assets. You need formal property representation, and you specifically need the concept of being able to represent assets and transfer the assets as a concept. Property effect number two, integrating dispersed information into one system. So a big, big issue is having a whole bunch of different systems that are localized. So you have these different pockets that do things in different ways. And it's not like states where you have a general idea of the way things work, you know, in the United States. The differences, you can figure out the differences, and they're not so vast as they're going to impede you from doing things like buying a house or transferring ownership of a house or whatever. But in a lot of these third world and communist, former communist countries, they have this big problem. (laughs) They need one knowledge base that they can work off of. They need compatible systems that can work with each other. And he said that he never found one legal system, just one legal system, let alone like (laughs) the one system for recording data or something like that. But he never found one legal system. In the third world or former communist countries that just worked across the board and western nations only integrated property systems about 200 years ago. So it's not something that has a long storied history in the west but in those countries in third world and in former communist countries they have to rely on local consensus which obviously can be sporadic property effect number three is making people accountable so using infractions liens dishonored contracts like uh, penalties for dishonored contracts and credit all those kinds of things like a credit system all those kinds of things make people accountable to the things they agree to so it makes it more stable so that you can have valued assets property effect number four making assets fungible so that you can differentiate between assets easily you can split them into shares you know in the united states we have things like tenancy in common and you have different ownership properties a lifetime tenancy tenancy and that sort of thing and it's really flexible you're you're able to do with your assets a whole bunch of different things And you also need standard descriptions of assets. So you know what you're working with quickly. If you just look at a description rather than having to go to the house and and redraw the lines of, of where this property is and all that sort of stuff. Property effect number five is networking people. So the ability to be able to communicate about assets effectively and efficiently, very important. And the big kind of thesis that he comes away with is to say that these countries need to be able to incorporate extra-legal industries. So what happens, and he goes on now to talk about America and what happened in America, but what needs to happen is that the ways that people have extra-legally been doing things is something that's normative. It's something that developed over time and is more foundational and cultural as opposed to just saying that these are the laws now deal with them so in america you have america leaving behind the old british laws and then you have the whole squatter issue there was a whole lot of stuff going on with squatters they were initially demonized and hated and then there's a gradual increase in their rights because they needed the lawmakers at the time needed to figure out how are we going to parse out all this land at one point you know a judge just says just come to me and say this is your land and i'm going to give it to you, I'm going to give you a title for it, just so we can have something tamped down, so we can ha- start building something here. And different states approach differently, but then we get the Homestead Act, which was codifying really what was already happening. So this supports the thesis of that it's the extra legal stuff that was going on, all the squatters, they were doing things that were illegal, but eventually that becomes normalized and, and then codified in something like the Homestead Act, because it's the thing that needs to happen so that we can develop. So for the third world, the American system and what happened with America is informative, and... And it's not about technology, it's about the codification of the extra-legal Things that are going on so that we they can have a, a unique system and all those things that I, the effects and, that I talked about before. There's a huge legal challenge. There are too many different systems uh, and he talked about how in Indonesia, there was this dog's barking rule. So you can, you walked as far as you could until you heard, heard dogs barking because they were saying that this isn't your territory. So get out of my territory. That's how you knew which ones were cohesive amongst themselves and which ones were separate ones. But mandatory law is not enough, it needs to be cultural, the reliance on government to make the law is actually not the norm historically, like I said, you would end up codifying, like the Homestead Act, you'd codify things that were already going on, and when it comes to legal philosophy, the law had to be discovered before it could be systematized, so that's something you stumble upon what the law actually is, as a, which is a kind of a priori platonic forms kind of thing, but you stumble upon what the law actually is as opposed to just make up the laws on the fly but you have to step into the extra legal sector he says to figure out what to do and he's doing a lot of work in peru around these areas to try to try to modernize in this way this the peruvian economy Then he goes into a bit of a discussion about the conflict between Smith and Marx and how Marx had this idea about how capitalism necessarily puts the resources in the hands of the rich at the expense of the poor. And the author is mostly an apologist for capitalism in this sense. And then he has this little, like it's barely a blurb about how, about whether succeeding at capitalism is cultural and whether that has anything to do with it. And then he brings up, he does the, you didn't build that routine of Obama and Warren asks if Bill Gates could have done anything that he did if he didn't have all these extra things. Uh, of course, the question then becomes, why didn't all the other people who had all those things do the things that Bill Gates did? Obviously, these things are extremely complex, and to use that as kind of a cheeky repose to the actual real question of whether there are cultural issues that get in the way of certain practices, I mean, that's, it's disingenuous. And his answer is first, give property rights to everyone and see what happens. If that's your critique is about culture, then give property rights to everybody and see what happens and let it play out that way. Okay, into my analysis, that was pretty much the book. It's got a great hypothesis. The fundamental idea about all the gears that have to be in place to be able to turn each other is an important idea to amplify in this context. It's many aspects of the economy are opaque to virtually everybody, (laughs) you know, and there are things like the idea of property rights, the enforcement of property rights, the consistency and application of laws, the predictability of what's gonna happen with your property and the ability to pool assets together to create something bigger. All those things are really important to get across that you can't take those for granted. Those are things that have to be developed. And of course, that goes strongly against the whole idea of divesting the concept of property rights, of you having your own property, which is good. (laughs) But ultimately, this is an extremely complex phenomenon. I'm not sure how much explanatory power all of this has. I'm sure it has a lot more than a lot of the books that we've read. (laughs) It seemed pretty persuasive when it came to identifying the pieces of capitalism that are missing from other countries and the things that have to be developed before they can fit in that space of being able to use capital to create bigger things. I think it it was pretty persuasive on that. But we're fundamentally asking why a population of millions of people with a history in deep time in the international context doesn't have robust property law systems? I mean, this is such a complex question. It's, it's ridiculous. So, generally it overstates the conclusion. He exhibits little humility when it comes to dealing with such complex ph- phenomena. While he's an economist, there's little discussion of the controls and weighting and identifying different variables. There's not that much interest in all those complexities, which could be extremely important. So big picture wise, the author pays lip service to the question of whether the issue could be cultural or not, but I think it's actually more important to take that seriously. There's no way that private ownership, that good property law system, and consistency in application of law, there's no way that those things are going to make it worse. (laughs) So that's fine, implement those all you want. But we like to pretend that the human brain has this perfect elasticity, Like in education, we think that if we just give enough education that anybody can be and do anything, which is patently not the case, Someone with an 80 IQ will never be a GM in chess. It's never going to happen. It doesn't matter how much you try to teach them chess or how much you try to improve their intelligence or whatever or any other factors, they're not going to get there. It's likely analogous to physical limitations. So there could be outliers or whatever. But when it comes to physical limitations, obviously, there's a certain class of people. If you just take everybody in the middle and they did all the same workouts as the greatest players in any given sport, they're not going to beat those players. And that's not even getting into, like, temperament and the millions of other differences between human beings that could affect all the things that are important for developing a robust property system... (laughs) (laughs) And there absolutely could be a threshold in populations or thresholds in populations about various characteristics. And the range of affinity to any given behavior could absolutely be governed by biology. And those things could impact the culture and whether a group of people has an ability to do certain things. Now, I personally think that all the countries of the world are perfectly capable of having a robust property system. But it's an empirical question of whether that's actually true. It's an empirical question that has to be seriously considered whether there are cultural affinities that are directly in the way and how much elasticity people actually have in those areas when it comes to behaving in way one versus way two or whatever. So a lot of countries try the easy short-term route of just having a planned economy and saying, let's just copy and paste Western countries. Some even tried state ownership, pure on state ownership and find a recipe for disaster. But it's likely that all of these countries have to go through the same long-term process of figuring out all the subtleties of a robust property law system on their own as opposed to just downloading it from somebody else there are foundational ideas that we're not even aware of that are ingrained by time and experience that they're likely going to have to figure out so anyway that was the mystery of capital i thought this was going to be like a 10 minute episode jesus but there's a lot going on it's a really complex question and one that certainly i definitely applaud what this guy's doing in peru trying to figure this stuff out and implement ways of fixing it and hopefully we'll have you know in a few decades we'll (laughs) we'll have a good experiment to see how well it worked like i said said, it's not going to hurt. There's no way it's going to hurt to have better property laws and better protection of ownership and all that sort of thing. So that's good. Anyway, this was the last coffee house. I hope everybody's doing well. It appears the world is opening back up and we'll see what happens as a result of that. But I, for one, am going to keep on reading and see how many of these books I can get through. And I'll see you on the next one. All right, bye. (laughs)